Welcome back to the official SASTA podcast with your host Harry Stebbings at H Stebbings with two B's on Snapchat and brought to you by the godfather of SAS himself, Jason Lemkin at Jason LK on Twitter. Now for the show today, we rejoin David Scott, general partner at Matrix Partners for this very special two-parter. And if you haven't had the chance to listen to part one from Monday, then it really is a must. However, enough from me. So we're now going to dive straight back into the show today with David Scott, general partner at Matrix Partners. Good. That's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up. So I always find it rather strange how uh, negative churn is always rather left aside in the world of SaaS, and it's something I've heard you speak about before. But for those who don't know, what is negative churn uh, for you first? Let's start with the meta view again. That worked well. Yep. Yep. Excellent. So best way to explain this is to say that we sold two customers. Let's say the first customer bought twenty thousand dollars worth of um, you know annual product from us. And the second customer only bought $2,000 worth of, of annual product from us. And then and a year later, let's look at two scenarios for, for churn. In scenario one, we lose the $20,000 customer. Even though our customer churn will only be 50% because we only lost one out of the two customers, our revenue churn is dramatically different because we lost 20000 out of 22000 which is nearly 95% of the, of the revenue walked out the door with, with losing that customer. So that tells you a couple of things. You want to be tracking both customer churn and revenue churn separately because they're actually different. But now, let's take a different scenario here. Let's say that instead of losing the big customer, we lost the small customer. So we lost $2,000 of revenue. Um, so arguably, our churn in that situation is 5%. I think it's right. I probably have the, don't have the math totally right, but somewhere in that, in that range there, uh, revenue churn is only 5%. But now let's take a scenario where actually one remaining customer, instead of doing 20000 with us, we actually were successful in expanding their usage of the product. So they're now actually doing $30,000 with us instead of $20,000. Well, the new 10000 that they've signed up for is far greater than the 2000 of churn that we lost. So I call that negative churn. We're negative by $8,000 in terms of lost revenue. In other words, we, we added $8,000. So maybe a second way of looking at that is to look at how many dollars did we retain? Well, we retained $30,000 out of $22,000, even though we lost some customers. So our dollar retention rate, DRR as it's sometimes referred to, is greater than 100%. I, I, don't, I can't do the math right off the top of my head, but it's probably something like 135% or something like that uh, of dollar retention rate. And what I've found by doing models um, of different businesses and working with different companies that have achieved this negative churn is that it is transformative to a SaaS business. So the top piece of advice I would give to SaaS entrepreneurs, once they've gotten product market fit and a well on their way to understanding the sales and marketing process is that they should turn their attention to, to figuring out how to get negative churn, you know, how to find a way to upsell and cross-sell into their installed base. So even though they lose some customers, that ultimately they're still going to end up with more revenue from the cohort that began uh, when they, you know, they signed up that group of customers uh, a year later than they started with at the beginning. What does that do to the pricing axes? Excellent question. Yeah, well spotted, Harry, because that, that is, uh, you know, the first question I get from uh, many startups is, well, wait a second, we've only got one product and it, and it, it, it all costs $2,000. So how are we going to get more money out of those customers? If And this was actually the exact story at HubSpot. You know, it took us a while to educate ourselves about this. We had a, a single product that sold at $500 a month and there was nothing to upsell there. Um, so we couldn't go back to the install base and get more money out of them. So the first thing you realize with this is, well, how do we 
sell something more to them, the answer is there's two things you could do. You, you can take your current product and have variable pricing axes so that even though they're using the same product, you're not selling them something different, you're going to get more money from them as they use it more. And so a good SaaS product will have at least one variable pricing axis and possibly more. So a common one you'll hear is how many seats of people are using this. But in many cases, that's not a good metric because you don't actually add more users, uh, but you can be still be delivering more value. So in HubSpot's case, they chose to pick the number of leads that are in the database as a good method of determining how much value the customer is getting out of the system. So as you add more leads, you pay more money to them. You know, you'll find many different things. Dropbox, for example, uses the amount of storage that you're using as a metric for uh, increasing how much you pay them. And I'm sure all of you are familiar with different pricing schemes out there. But the, the important factor there is to look at your pricing scheme and ask if you've got variable pricing axes. Don't worry about doing this if you're a very, very early stage company because actually, in truth, in the really early stage, you just want to keep things simple and sign up customers. This is kind of a, a slightly it's like secondary thing you start to work on as you get a more mature and successful SaaS company. The second thing you could obviously do is you could add more products. So uh, you can have a pro version and you could have a enterprise version and you could charge more money for those. So you have different feature breakouts. But those are different versions of your primary product. Uh, and then you could have some, some add-on products, which are really you know cross-sells to a different thing. You're selling them a reporting module. I think ultimately, when, when you look at mature SaaS businesses, even though the customers may not love this, mature SaaS businesses probably have to break their products down into lots of different modules and price that way. And the reason for this is pretty simple. You're going to find that some customers are very comfortable and happy to pay you two million a year for your product. And yet some other customers will only be willing to pay you $10,000 a year. So how on earth do you come up with pricing that lets you sell to both of those without accidentally finding that you're instead of getting the $2 million from the high-end customer, you're only getting 20000 from them because you just didn't come up with a good pricing scheme, which allows you to capture their willingness to pay you that high pricing differential there. And I think the way to do that is to end up with um, you know segmenting of the product into different elements that, you know, so you, you recognize that the $20,000 a year customer really doesn't need certain features, so you take them out, but you know that the $2 million a year customer it's really important to them to have, you know, global security features or things like that. And you put those into the, the version that they, they want to purchase. So hopefully that, that covers that topic. That, for you. that does. Upset. Well, it, it kind of doesn't. It kind of doesn't. Uh, I feel like I talk to you for days and days. But uh, in terms of the upsell itself, to what extent do you accept customization as a way of closing deals and accepting upsell? Customization to me is a really dangerous thing. If you can productize it, and at which point I don't think of it as customization because it's just standard products that you're using to deliver what the customer wants. That's good. Why do I dislike customization? Well, it, it's not scalable typically. It means that you're using professional services or some human element to somehow or other configure or change, customize the product to suit each customer. And, and ultimately, that ends up not being a very scalable model. So, so if you're going to accomplish customization with, with configuration changes to, in a very easy way, maybe even have the customer self-configure uh, to do that customization. That's terrific. I'm, I'm all in favor of that because that's highly scalable. Uh, another model that I've seen companies go with is um, using a channel to do that customization for them. And again, you know, that, that's an okay thing to do. The problem with it is that now you've got this, this very, it, it takes a long time to get a channel to form and to become productive. And so you're going to slow down your growth 
growth rate dramatically if you're going to rely on that channel as the way to, to grow your business. Over time, it can be a great accelerator for a business, but in the early days, relying on a channel is super hard to get, get productivity out of. And then final question before we do the quick fire round. Uh, and it's yep. in terms of the upsell itself, to what extent do you think it's the responsibility of customer success to, to negotiate and to be responsible for optimizing the upsell? Yeah, excellent question. My view on this here is that the account manager, who, who is the person inside of the customer success team, needs to maintain a relationship with a customer that's ultra highly trusted. And I think that you will damage that relationship if they are ever involved in asking that customer for money. I think you want that, that person to be responsible for making a very, very happy customer. So they're directly linked to how likely the, the salesperson will be to get a renewal or an upsell because that account manager has done a good job of keeping them happy. But I personally don't love getting them involved in actually asking for the renewal or asking for the upsell. I think they can do a great job of getting the customer to want the upsell and then turning them over to an order taker to take that order. But I think you should you should have separation of church and state there. Church, church being making the customer happy and, and state being taking money from them and taking orders from them. And in terms of the point of contact within a company that you're dealing with, how important is it to track a champion within a company? Does it matter if they churn and leave? Uh, should you kind of be focused on this? as the provider of the software. Yeah, excellent question. Great insight that you've got with even asking that question. So, you know, what I've seen about customer retention is that there are two important predictors of whether you're going to have churn or not. Not They're not the only ones, but they're two very important ones. The first one is after the company has bought the product, they're in a great mood and they're willing to spend a lot of time learning the product and getting it going. And if you successfully onboard them, you've got a great, happy customer. If you don't successfully onboard them and you wait until you're trying to get your renewal to try to fix the happiness, it's much harder because they're not willing to spend the time. You know, they, they, already, they already had a bad experience with you and they've moved on and they're spending their time somewhere else. So it's really hard to get them to go back and do things now that you failed in that early stage there. So what that tells me is that you should implement a scoring system at the end of your onboarding um, period to get the customer involved and tell you how well you did your onboarding. And if you didn't do a good job of onboarding, fix it then because that's the time when you've got their attention and that's the time when you need to, to make them happy. So that's that's the first factor. And you raised the second factor, which is I've seen in our portfolio companies that maybe even more important than that, that onboarding thing is that if your champion leaves the company and your product is not 100% sticky, then that is a huge predictor of churn. So one of the things the account manager wants to do is track whether your champion is still at that company. And if they leave, you know you've got to do another selling job, even though you've got a contract that might last for another six months or so. Because if you don't get another champion before your renewal comes along, they're very likely to churn. That's less true the more sticky your product is. We could talk about product stickiness, but that's sort of a super big topic. I think we should dive into a quick fire though. 60 seconds okay. faster. Okay, how does that sound? Sounds good to me. So let's do greenfield opportunities in SaaS for you. What are you excited by? Um, so right now, I'm excited about the fact that AI, artificial intelligence, machine learning, is a new enabling technology. And I think it may allow us to disrupt some older areas of business that have never had this applied to them. And so I'm interested in observing how AI gets brought into application areas such as, you know, selling, such as marketing, such as customer support, such as HR. And I, I'm not 100% sure yet whether this is going to result in brand new companies or whether the incumbents are going to be able to adopt this quickly enough to, to avoid there being new companies formed. But I do think we will see some new companies. So that's an area that I'm excited about. What do you know now that you wish you'd known when you 
started and you can choose when you started as in when you started as a VC or when you started as an accidental founder in the beginning. Yeah. So I'm going to pick the former, sorry, the, 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 the latter when I started as an entrepreneur. The top thing I didn't appreciate when I started as an entrepreneur was how crucial building a great management team was. You know, I was a little sloppy in how I did it. For one, ex- one example here is I never did really extensive reference checking and I didn't build the kind of recruiting machine that I needed to make sure I saw the very best candidates and allow me to see multiple of them when I was recruiting. And I just didn't even know what a good manager looked like because I was a first-time entrepreneur. I didn't have that opportunity and that, that experience of understanding what, what a team looked like, when I needed to build a team, when I should add the various members, what their skills should look like, how to interview them, how to reference check them, etc. So that's the top thing I wish I'd known. And I will say, of all the things that I got from my early venture capitalists, this was one of the things which they understood because they were doing it so many times and had so much experience in, in recruiting and, and hiring and being able to attract really good people to the table that they were able to really help me learn this. So if you're a first-time entrepreneur and this is not something that's you know, second nature to you, this is a place where your VCs and, and board members can potentially be very helpful to you, particularly if they've got that operating background and have done this themselves. What are most SaaS companies making a mistake with, with regards specifically to their sales funnel? I think the top mistake, you you remember my three-phase model there, uh, search for product market fit, building a repeatable and scalable uh, and profitable sales process, and then lastly, the expansion phase. I think the top mistakes happen in the last two phases. I think the the most common one I'm going to pick out is that when they get into that third phase, they are not aggressive enough about building a recruiting machine to our salespeople. And so I've sat in countless board meetings where we've missed the bookings target because they didn't hire enough salespeople on time. And they're kind of proud of it because they felt like, well, we saved all this money by not hiring these people on time, when actually they should absolutely not be proud of saving that money. That's a rare situation where you don't want your management team saving money. You want them to be able to hit their hiring plan because that hiring plan determines the ability of the company to grow and to, to grow bookings. So there's just one that I'll pick up for you that I think is a super common and miss that people make. And then finishing with one that's not in the schedule, but one I'm too intrigued by having listened to you today. And it's you're a mentor to, to many. We've spoken to Hardy before and, you know, you inspire many with your blog. Who's your mentor and who do you really look up to and admire? Boy, that's a tough one. There's a, a partner inside of Matrix who has been my mentor. His name is Tim Barrows. He was the board member that I had at Matrix on my last two ventures where I was the entrepreneur and Matrix was my VC. And he's been an unbelievably great guy to have in my uh, background. And he's been, he's very, very smart and he's very experienced. And he's taught me a ton about business, about investing, about management teams, that sort of thing there. So he, he, he would be a great one there. David, I can't tell you literally how much I've enjoyed today. As I said, we're definitely going to do a round two on product stickiness, but I'm so grateful to you for joining me today. Uh, It's been a huge pleasure. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I really do want to say again a huge thanks to David, genuinely one of my favourite ever shows to record and I learned so much from David in that show and he's been phenomenal in terms of personal advice for me and a true legend of the industry so absolutely fantastic to have him on the official Sasta podcast and if you enjoyed the show with David today and cannot get enough of Sasta then we would love to see you at Sasta Annual 2017 and just for you Mr Jason Lemkin has been very kind in offering 20% off the ticket price and a free happy hour of mojitos with me. I'm not sure what's more tempting, saving money or drinking with me 
then you can choose that one. But when you use the promo code Drinks with Harry, you'll get that fantastic deal. That's Drinks with Harry, those three words. And I'd absolutely love to see you there. As always, I so appreciate all the support and I look very forward to bringing you next week's episodes.